This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour, we take people's questions as they've been studying God's word, maybe an issue they're facing in their life or ministry or church or family, and they would like biblical help with. That's what we are about. There are several ways you can reach us. You can email us here directly into the studio, and that's TBL. It stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Or if you prefer, you can call us live at uh, 843-525-1859, 525-1859-843-EXCHANGE. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We do give preference to live callers, however, um, so if you want to be guaranteed that your question is maybe answered today, call us live, but you can dictate and remain totally anonymous We've had just a ton of questions. We, we have more questions come in every week than we can begin to answer. But given enough time and the rapture doesn't take place, and then you won't need my answer if the rapture takes place because uh, Jesus can answer all your questions. We that, see through a glass dimly that it right. will all be revealed. Exactly. But if, uh, you know, when we do answer your questions, we typically, uh, assuming you did it through the website, we'll email you back and tell you your question was answered today. You might have asked it a month ago, two months ago. Uh, but then you can click on uh, the broadcast at wagp.net and replay the Bible line broadcast. And it will show all the questions that were asked that day. You don't even have to listen to the whole thing. You can scan through till we get to your question. So, Rick, without all said, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Corey from New Hampshire writes, I've been saved for six years now, and when I was Uh, first started going to church, rather, I met a man there who had gone to that church for over 20 years. Over the next five years, we became good friends, and he helped me grow as a new believer. Last year, though, he left our church, claiming he wasn't being fed, and he was frustrated with how leadership in the church wasn't focused on discipling the men. A few months after he left, we had coffee, and he told me that he loved his new church because they were trying new things to reach the lost, such as concerts and worship bands with dark and flashing lights during morning worship and messages that only last 28 minutes so people don't tune out. He kept saying that the old way the church has been reaching the lost doesn't seem to work, and he is happy to be in a new church that will do anything to reach the lost. I believe the gospel is for all, and it doesn't become irrelevant over time. My question to you is from someone who firmly believes that we don't alter the message or compromise biblical truths or practices to reach the lost, what scriptures can I use to support my claim? Thank you, and God bless. All right, so what you're really asking is, what does the morning worship service look like? And do we have any pattern in scripture? And of course, the answer is yes. Uh, God gives us a wisdom on how a church service should be structured in what we typically refer to as the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles would, of course, uh, comprise First and Second Timothy, 
and the book of, of Titus. But what you're describing has become a pattern across America. We're convinced, well, we need to black out the windows and we need to have a lot of, you know, a rock band up there so that, um, you know, you have to wear earplugs maybe if it's too loud for you. And there are literally churches where if it's too loud, they pass out earplugs to you. Um, we have to have flashing lights. We have to have some self-centered worship band that's all about them. And uh, those are the kinds of techniques. And now, now we give a back seat to God's Word. 28 minutes, you say. At least that's longer than the old 12-minute sermon of the 1950s that was done in liberal churches. And they still, for the most part, preach 12 to 15 minutes. So here's the problem, Corey from New Hampshire. Um, your friend has bought into a way in which to do church that's antithetical to the New Testament. What you find in the worship service among prayer and uh, singing one to another into the Lord, making melody in your heart, giving, uh, what takes primary focus in the New Testament church is the preaching of the Word. Now, if your church that this friend left seemed dead, the problem was maybe not—in fact, I can tell you, uh, I I don't want to judge his pastor because I don't know him. But the problem was not the preaching of the Word. Now, it is true there are some churches where the preaching of the Word is just dead. And the reason it's dead is because very often a pastor is not prepared. He really has nothing to say. He's winging it. He hasn't studied. He hasn't followed the example of Acts 6 where the apostles who are all elders, all pastors, I'll often say all elders are not apostles, but all apostles are elders. So Peter speaks of himself in First Peter 5 as a fellow elder. And, of course, the, el- the term elder, bishop, um, pastor is used interchangeably of the same office, not of different offices in the New Testament. I know there are churches that have hierarchical structures, and they have someone above the local church. Maybe they call him a bishop. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. With that said, what they did is, they committed themselves primarily to the preaching of the word in prayer. The preaching of the word for a pastor goes in two directions to the lost. He is to uh, follow Christ and be a fisher of man. And some pastors' sermons are dead on Sunday morning because their life is disobedient Monday through Saturday. They're not fishing for men. And I would say that this applies, of course, not just to a pastor, but pastors are to be examples to the flock. And God's word is very clear that you know, follow me and I'll make you fishers for men. If you're not following Christ, you're not fishing. If you're not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. But listen, the word of the cross, I'm reading now from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved by it, it is the power of God. Listen, there's no substitute for the preaching of God's word because the preaching of God's word is the instrument that the Spirit of God inspired and energizes and uses to open up dead, unregenerate hearts, but also to grow believers. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk. Milk there, not simple truth, but the purity of truth. Uh, The Word's used in a couple of different ways. We are to long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation. Uh, Paul will go on. God was well pleased, 1 Corinthians one twenty one. God was well pleased. Through the foolishness of preaching. Some, it says the message, if you go out into the margin of the New American Standard, literally through preaching. God was well pleased through, through preaching. 
Uh, now they change it to the message because then you get the verb preached right next to it, but it's not by accident. It's kind of a play on words in Greek. God was well pleased through the foolishness of preaching, preached to those who believe. In other words, the word of God is a foolish way, a stupid way in the minds of many new evangelicals to reach people. We need skits. We need drama. We need entertainment. We need to uh, come in on uh, a motorcycle, a Harley up on the stage. Uh, We need to wear, you know, $5,000 sneakers, $500 sneakers. That's the biggest thing lately in the last few weeks. We need a uh, a guy like Ed Young Jr. to have a fashion blog for pastors to know how to dress on Sunday morning, you know, in $2,000 outfits to be cool and everything else. This is all self-centered, man-made, sick stuff. It's really, really, really sad. So some guy comes in a few weeks ago on a zip line into from the back of the auditorium to the stage. You know, th- this is the sheer nonsense that we're talking about. God doesn't use that. He doesn't honor that. Now, it may produce crowds and big groups of people, but people who are worldly, unconverted, and unfortunately, many who are just headed for hell. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Listen, it's the foolishness of the methodologies that we are using today, and God is just saying that's, 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 that's foolish but I want you to adopt a different kind of foolishness, what the world would call foolishness, what your friend would call foolishness. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And of course, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So a pastor needs to be prepared to teach the word. He's studied it. He's exegeting it carefully, but he needs to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. We speak God's wisdom. So that's what we are to preach, and that's what that church needs. So if your church was dead and not growing, the problem was not the methodology. The problem might have been the one who is delivering the message, that he was not spirit-filled or not well-prepared, maybe doing a lot of things, working hard that he shouldn't have been doing, when he needed to give his focus to reaching the lost during the week and preparing his message for Sunday morning so he had something to say. And if a pastor will do that and take it seriously, he can preach for an hour. The, the worship services in our day are so short compared to centuries ago, even in early Puritan America where the average worship service was between two and a half and three hours. And the preacher preached for an hour, an hour and a half, Um, So we've given a backseat to God's authority. It's foolishness, yes, but it's foolishness that God uses. Great question, Corey from New Hampshire. Let's go to the next caller. I think they're waiting online. Indeed, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, as you said, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, good morning. This is David from Columbia. Um, I just had a question about uh, the difference between like a lifestyle of fornication, like a homosexuality situation where it's really almost impossible to, to be forgiven because you continue to live in that lifestyle versus someone who has been married before, divorced, and remarried. And we know from Scripture that that's, you know, you're committing adultery. 
And I've heard you say before, you know, that you can't unscrambled eggs. And I'm just trying to make sure that I understand the difference between the two. I mean, after you ask for forgiveness for the adultery that was committed after the divorce, then you're forgiven from that. You're married to your new wife and you just move forward. And that adultery is gone. Is that how that works? That's correct. You know, you, you can't unscramble eggs. And Jesus didn't deny the woman at the well. He didn't say, well, you were married just once. You've actually had five husbands. You've been married five times. So when someone divorces their spouse, whether they think they have biblical grounds or not, and they marry again, that second person is now their mate. And they cannot um, then divorce their second spouse to say, hey, what I did I shouldn't have done, so I'm going to divorce my mate, and I'm going to go back to my first husband or wife. No, God in Deuteronomy 24 calls that an abomination. That would legalize adultery. So... Uh, yeah, you, you can't unscramble eggs. You, you only compound the sin. But here's the thing. It is important that we recognize the sin because that's what God calls it. And there's sometimes a cloud over a marriage that a Christian has where they indeed need to come clean because they're always making excuses. They're always talking about their ex and what he did or what she did and da-da-da-da-da. Listen, even if we follow the exception clauses, unfortunately, the majority take it today. The exception clause today, except for porneia. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits moikeia, and the exception is porneia. So he uses two different distinct words, and of course, the exception is only found in Matthew's gospel because he's addressing Jewish people who practiced what was called betrothal. But for nearly 1,500 years, people said, no, there's no grounds at all for divorce. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits moikeia. Some translations in English say, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for fornication or immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, the exception is found in Matthew's gospel because Jews practice betrothal. You were betrothed typically a year, and if during that time someone was unfaithful, um, you were allowed because your marriage had not been consummated. You were given the permission basically to a writer's certificate of divorce, and that's what Joseph was going to do. He had had no physical relationship with Mary, but he's called the husband of Mary. Why? Because they were betrothed. So it's different from engagement. Betrothal is much more binding. And he thought that Mary had been unfaithful in being a righteous man. He's not going to break the law. He's going to put her away secretly, not wanting to disgrace her because he still loves her. And, of course, um, Erasmus in the 16th century said, no, the exception clause refers to adultery after marriage, and only the innocent party can be remarried. Erasmus, I hope we see him in heaven. He debated the Protestant reformers over the issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone and said it was not true. Now, whether or not he ever had a change of heart, whether or not he just stayed with the Roman Catholic view that justification is also contributed to by your good works rather than just being the fruit of them, I don't know. Only heaven will tell. But unfortunately, he was the one who introduced this other view that unfortunately a lot of evangelicals hold to today. But even if the exception clause, meaning adultery after marriage for the innocent party only, giving freedom to remarry, were practiced, um, 98% of second marriages would probably never happen. 
but we're kind of like in Christ's day, um, and not by accident. There's a parallel between Christ coming into the world the first time and his return the second time. And so marriages are just so cheap. I just met with someone. They were on their fifth marriage, fifth, fifth, fifth marriage. Um, so it's more like dating. And, of course, sexual immorality before marriage c- contributes to that. People have multiple partners before they get married. So, you know, getting married sometimes is just like a more formal date. And if it doesn't work, I'll dump her or dump him and I'll try it again. So um, my point, though, is that there is forgiveness, and we should never dismiss that. Um, Yes, a person who's in a lifestyle of pornea, uh, sexual immorality, uh, either before or after marriage, is showing the marks of an unbeliever. Lifestyle, not the possibility of being unfaithful to your spouse. Any Christian has the Um, probably opportunity in this life and the capacity certainly to do that. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Why? Because no temptation is overtaking you, but such is his common man. So if we think "Ah, I could never do that, um, if we think I would never even divorce my wife and could never do that, uh, you're really tempting the devil to tempt you. Never underestimate the power of the fallen sin nature. But here's the thing is that if we've been down that road and we're on a second marriage, We should never make excuses for it. We need to be able to look at our children, our grandchildren in the eye and say, look, what I did was wrong. Let me explain to you what God's best is. We need to be able to do that. And if we don't, then we're really contributing to the problem of our culture and we're taking away our saltiness and diminishing the light that God wants us to shine. So um, David from Columbia, I don't know if he's still on the line. Does that make sense? Do you have a follow-up? I, no, I really appreciate that. I just, you know, the devil's just good at kind of holding things over your head, and I just wanted to hear, you know, the difference because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want it to be an ongoing thing. I and mean, what you're saying is, once you're forgiven for that, that's right. You know, God's buried your, I mean, it, God's it, buried your so. sin in the deepest ocean. He's put it behind his back, as far as the east is from the west, not the north from the south. If you go north from the gro- globe, that's a fixed distance. If you go south, that's a fixed distance. It's not by accident that the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, if you go east, you go infinitely east. Uh, He remembers your sin no more. Not that, you know, he has a case of divine amnesia, but the thought is, is that he doesn't hold it against you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we need to claim that and not beat ourselves up, but neither do we ever. It's like someone having an abortion just because God's forgiven them is not a, a grounds to say, well, you know, what I did wasn't that bad. And I had all these difficult circumstances and my boyfriend was going to desert me. And so I had to have an abortion. No, you, you don't make excuses. You just come clean and God honors that. And that's the, na- that's the nature of genuine confession. And that's the problem sometimes is that people don't really truly confess their sin because First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins... And the word confess is the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same. We get the word homo sapien, homosexual, um, legeo, to say the same thing. So God asks us to say what he says about our sin. And if we don't really do that, if we don't come clean, then we don't very often experience our forgiveness. And so a couple who's on a second marriage, they should have a point in their life where they get on their knees and say, God, what we did was wrong. It was evil. But I 
thank you for your promise that when we genuinely confess, you are faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse. That's a verse given to those who've been saved, of course. It's not a salvation verse, how to be saved. We're not saved by confessing our sin. If that were true, Jesus could have said, my father's forgiving. Just ask for forgiveness and you go to heaven. That's what a lot of people think. Um, and that's a, um, a misrepresentation of the gospel. No, he asks us to confess our sin as believers. Uh, the death of Christ, though, is the basis for our forgiveness, that Christ saw all the things that we would do before we were saved, even after we were saved. Once for all time, Christ died for sins, Hebrews 10. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. So he didn't die for some or most, but all of your sin, even those sins that we would commit before and after conversion. And so with that in mind, we need to claim that forgiveness, assuming we have the bank account of forgiveness. If we've never come to genuine faith in Christ, we have no bank account. We have no basis by which God can forgive me. If I present a check to the teller for $100 and there's no money in the account, it doesn't matter how much I beg or plead. But if I have a million dollars in the bank, I can present the check for $100 and expect to receive the funds. The same is true with forgiveness. If I've received Jesus as Lord, I have an infinite bank account of forgiveness. Now, that's not a basis to sin. John will later write a few verses later, my little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So it's not an excuse, even a Christian listening to me today, well, my marriage stinks today. I've seen other Christians on second marriages. Maybe I'll just uh, divorce this one and try it again. No, that's presuming on the grace of God, and that mimics more the attitude of an unbeliever than a believer. But again, anything is possible, and we need to just make sure that if we are truly saved, that we don't let Satan beat us up over something that God has said is forgiven. What God has called clean, let no man call unclean. Good question. Thanks for calling, David. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Tina from Lemington, Ontario, Canada, right across the Erie Lake from Cleveland, I believe. She writes, Hi, Pastor Brogy. My dad claims to be a believer, but he has so much unforgiveness and bitterness in his heart towards his stepmom and some siblings. I'm just wondering, can someone claim they are saved and still have that assurance even though they have so much unforgiveness in their heart? It's a marvelous, marvelous question that you're asking. And the forgiveness is really taught in the New Testament on two levels. There is a, a justification kind of forgiveness and there's a fellowship kind of forgiveness. There's the kind of forgiveness that shows that we're converted, and there's the kind of forgiveness that shows we are growing. So let me deal with both of those and uh, what the Lord says. I've just turned here to Matthew chapter 18, and of course, um, uh, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. He, he deals with uh, first sin within the church, and then Peter, that prompts a question, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Shall I forgive him up to seven times? And of course, that was the rabbinical teaching of the day, that the truly spiritual would not forgive once or twice, but seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, he's not saying 490 times, but an infinite number of times. And so he said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents. 
was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, that all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went through him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So on the one hand, this man, he owes his master in modern terms $20 million dollars. And his master is willing to forgive an impossible debt, much like God forgives us of impossible things, because our sin is so great. Um, and uh, he's released, and when he goes home, and his uh, his servant owes him a hundred denarii, basically twenty bucks, he's unwilling to forgive. And so Jesus makes this application. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to them, You wicked slave, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then he says, My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. So this is what we would call conversion forgiveness. If God has forgiven you of a $20 million debt and you are willing, wanting, by a way of a lifestyle um, to withhold forgiveness to someone else, then you probably have a pretty sure and certain mark that you have never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Because, again, those who've been forgiven of a $20 million debt typically are willing to forgive their brother of a $100 debt, and that's really what is in view. However, there is what we might call fellowship forgiveness, and fellowship forgiveness deals with the daily um, forgiving of people who have wronged us. So when the Lord taught believers how to pray, these are, these are not lost people that he's giving instruction to in the Sermon on the Mount. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our day, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. How? As we have forgiven our debtors. So that's what we would call fellowship forgiveness. That's why Paul in Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just like God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So is it possible for a Christian for a period of time to withhold forgiveness? The answer is yes. And that's why, while on the one hand, as Matthew 18 indicates, it's a sign of conversion, on the other hand, it's a mark of fellowship, that you're in intimacy with God. So when you get saved, you enter into an eternal relationship with God that can never be broken. So you're not saved by forgiving people. You're saved by the blood of Christ, by his death, burial, and the resurrection, what the Bible calls the gospel. But if you are saved, as a general rule, you'll be a forgiving person. But a Christian can withhold forgiveness. And when they do, they have broken not their relationship with God, but fellowship. But again, I think the key here is lifestyle. If a person is in a lifestyle of unforgiveness, then they probably have a sure mark that they're not 
converted. What does forgiveness look like? Well, you know, if you really truly have forgiven someone, you, you resist revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Uh, you're not one who's wanting to uh, seek revenge. Um, you, you'll, you'll actually seek the person's well-being. Jesus talks about bless those who, who persecute you. Um, you'll be sad for the consequences that fall on their life. You know, there's a, a lady who, and my wife and I have prayed for her. We're really kind of sad for her. We've, we've, we've warned people for over a decade ever before she came out on certain issues that Rachel Hell Evans should not be someone that, um, you know, Christian women should look to and follow. And yet she has this huge following of millennials. She's in her thirties and, you know, she's come out advocating, you know, basically Christian homosexuality. She was supposed to be doing a conference with two men who were supposed to speak and they're married to each other but they both claim to be born-again Christians, and, you know, and there's a number of ladies, you know, you get some like Beth Moore says, well, we may differ on certain things, uh, but, you know, look, there's a, there's a place to separate, not on secondary issues, but we're talking about primary moral issues, and Rachel Held Evans has, through this blog that she created about a decade ago, has become hugely popular, written a number of books and uh, the last thing that she tweeted before she went into a coma, she was in a hospital sick with some kind of a virus. And, and she, uh, she said, oh, my one regret is I won't get to watch Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones, which I was ignorant of until recently. I thought it was a video game. But it's a show, one of the most popular shows in America now on HBO and it's just basically filled with pornography, very visual sexual scenes. And it's very sad that Christians would even watch these kinds of things and that she would advocate that to all these young Christians. Yeah, we're free in Jesus. You can do what you want. Now she's in a coma. And I don't, you know, uh, rejoice in that. By no means do I rejoice in that. It's very sad that she's in a coma. Her dad is a professor at Bryan College. She grew up in an evangelical home. She heard the truth, but she's obviously rejected the truth, and she shows the marks of an unbeliever. And um, and she's influencing people, not for good, but for evil. But the Bible says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. You, you don't rejoice in people who are living unforgiving lives or people who are in sin. In fact, Jesus said, you pray for your enemies. You love them. Um, You do everything to seek reconciliation. If possible, Paul will say, be at peace with all men as much as it depends upon you. So forgiveness has certain marks to it. If you've really released a person of a debt, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not angry because the Bible can say, be angry, but sin not. Uh, nor does it recognize that there can't be consequences to choices people have made. God talks about, you know, those whom he loves, he disciplines. Uh, in Second Samuel, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and was involved not just in the murder of Moriah, but some other men. And God forgave him, but there are consequences. The sword shall never depart from your house. Uh, in the case when the Jewish people wanted to go into the promised land, 
And in their unbelief, they ignored what God had plainly said and promised, and they believed the word of man over the word of God. They believed the testimony of the ten over the testimony of the two who just repeated what God had said. Um, Moses pleaded for the people, and God said, I'll forgive them, but they're never going to go into the promised land. And so everyone 20 and up died in the wilderness no one went in with the exception of those who were 19 and under along with Joshua and Caleb. God let the whole generation. So forgiveness recognizes there can be consequences and everything else, but it is the release of a debt. And if a person lives in a, a lifestyle of unforgiveness, at, at worst, they're just lost. And at best, maybe they're saved, but the New Testament wouldn't give them a lot of assurance and they're just out of fellowship with the Lord. But if they're out of fellowship with the Lord, God's going to discipline them. He, he, he's going to bring them to the woodshed. Anyway, all right, let's go to the next question. I think we have a live caller waiting. We do, indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, gentlemen, fellow ministers. Yeah, I got two quick questions. Yeah, how come under the law enforcement so concerned about recovering lost children and they're so animate about it, yet at the same time, they have people, babies are being aborted for the thousands, where's, where's the ground gain in that area? And my also another question I got also is that I think I discovered I got the gene of being holy. I mean, if, if, the, if the, everybody got the gene of being homosexual, why could I have the gene of being holy? I mean, I think the Supreme Court should pass a law. Hey, I have the right to be holy. I mean, I have the right to be a, a righteous man. I mean, I got the gene. I think I was born with a gene. But that that case will happen. I think that will never pass. Or people will uprise against uh, a person who thinks he was we born. Oh, I think I'm born holy. I can't help it. I mean, I, I just feel that way. I think I was born a holy, righteous man. So what do you think about that? Well, let me deal with your first question. Let me start there. Um I don't think it's a contradiction in terms that a police officer would do everything he could to find a lost child because he is called to enforce the law. The problem is not with the police officer. Uh, the problem, of course, is with the law itself. One expresses a, a righteous expression of life, and so if a little child's lost, we care deeply about the child, and we want to do everything we can to rescue the child, to find the child, to protect the child. And, of course, it's a total denial of what God has revealed in his scripture, two of the biggest, worst decisions ever made by the Supreme Court and the history of America you've brought up today. One was the legalization of abortion, and the other, of course, was the legalization of gay marriage. Those are two things that will create more problems, more trouble, more uh, will invite God's judgment than any other form of terrorism or anything else that you can think of. Our biggest threat is not Muslims who want to blow us up and kill us. Our biggest threat is God Almighty who is going to judge us as a nation because we've rejected his truth. And he is giving us over to what the Bible calls a depraved or a reprobate mind, what you might literally translate an upside-down mind. And God says, woe to you who call evil good and good evil. And so... Yeah, it's very sad uh, that our law legalizes the murder of unborn children, and it's really pathetically sad because we've gone into a new level where you've got like the governor of New York and the governor of Virginia boasting that, you know, if it's the birthday of the baby and the mother wants to have the baby killed, fine. You know, okay, well, what's it going to be next year? A month old? 
oh, you know, this was just too much, more than I thought. Uh, let me bring the child to an extermination center. And there was a, a guy at Harvard years ago who said it should be the right of a parent up to three years of age to kill their baby. Listen, life begins at conception. Now, in terms of homosexuality, obviously it is not a gene that we are born with. If God made me this way, he cannot hold me accountable for it morally. Yet God says, do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. The list goes on. Shall inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse says, but such were some of you. So God can forgive anyone. Uh, but we offer no forgiveness when we're a Rachel Held, Held Evans or some of these other so-called evangelicals who say there's nothing wrong with this. It's wrong, it's evil, just like extramarital homo, uh, heterosexual or premarital heterosexual is evil and can keep a person out of the kingdom of God if it becomes their lifestyle. But God can forgive and change anyone, but it's not something we are born with. It's not a gene that my parents give me, and it is a moral decision of the heart. There are things that can certainly can contribute to it. And so as a pastor, you know, and someone who's been in ministry since 1978, I've dealt with people, young boys who were raped by men, uncles, relatives, music teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very sad because sometimes they deal with that as adults. And sometimes if a child doesn't find you know, how to deal with shame and the fact that God loves them unconditionally and so on, uh, they'll act on it. And there are contributing factors that can, um, but but all I would say is that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and God can change and forgive anyone. And that's what we need to hold out. And we're in a culture war, and the war has accelerated. Uh, What we are seeing is what God promised he would do to a nation and to a world when they no longer honored him as God. And we're now moving into stage three of Romans 1. And if you think America is going to get better, it's not. It is only going to get worse unless God sends a supernatural revival from heaven. America 20 years from now will not be a pleasant place to live in. It will not. It will be a horrible place to live unless Jesus comes back first. Unless there is a revival that sweeps America, we are doomed as a culture. We are headed for trouble like we've never seen before, and we're going to have problems like we've never seen before, and you won't be able to have enough guns and lock your doors tight enough at night to protect your family. So our greatest threat is not the terrorists. It's, it's God Almighty. All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Thomas from Fortson, Georgia, writes, I'm looking for a good Bible study on 1 Corinthians. I'm looking for one that would be good for a group, and I'd like it to be for adults. It's easy to find Bible studies on the Internet, but hard to know what can be trusted. Thank you. Um, I would suggest the Irving R. Jensen series. He was a guy, he's been dead about, I don't know, maybe 25 years now. But Irving R. Jensen produced a number of inductive Bible studies. And so what he tried to do was to teach Christians the principles of observation interpretation and application. And he did one on virtually every book in the New Testament and some selected Old Testament books. But I would get I would just Google Irving R. Jensen, type in First Corinthians, and that would be a great Bible study. Now that will not give you he's conservative, Bible believing. 
He may ask some questions in certain ways that will stir your thought in terms of what it means. But it would be helpful to have some conservative uh, commentaries. You say, well, I don't want to use commentaries. I just want God to speak to me. Well, God can do that. But when a person says, well, I don't use commentaries, I just let God speak to me, what they're really saying is God can speak to me and he can't speak to anyone else. So I'm not going to read a commentary. A commentary should not be a substitute for your own study. But there are men and women in the body of Christ, women to teach women, men to teach men and women, that God has given the gift of teaching and the gift of pastor-teacher. And they take that gift, if they're good stewards, very seriously, and they'll study and they'll study hard. Um, It might be helpful to buy a a two-volume series called uh, The Bible Knowledge Commentary, the BKC. It came out in the 1980s. It's been out for a long time. So if you go to the used side, go to eBay and just type it in. It will bring you to the used books section of eBay. If you type in half.com, which now I, I was told last week was incorporated into eBay, it still brings you up, and you can type in the book and just Bible knowledge commentary. It will bring it up. It's like $150 new. You can probably find it for $20, $25. Now, it's a general commentary on every book of the Bible, but it tends not to deal with the obvious things, but it deals with the more difficult things. But also helpful is at the end of each book— and so if you were studying 1 Corinthians at the BKC, at the end of each book, uh, you will have an annotated bibliography that will give you some help for some other conservative works. So, you know, you can buy a single-volume commentary on 1 Corinthians. You could buy a multi-volume commentary on 1 Corinthians. Um, so that would be a good place to start. But a good discussion guide to ask and explore the right kind of questions, I would get Irving R. Jensen's book, and then I would encourage the person who's leading the discussion to be fully aware of the different issues that are going to be raised in different passages so that he can um, communicate and discuss these things and guide the conversation accordingly. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question or comment on today's Bible line, and we have another live caller standing by, thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Boger. This is Anthony. Good morning. How are you doing, Rick? Oh, I'm doing Hello. great. Doing great. Go yeah, ahead. Anthony, thanks uh, for calling. Uh, okay. What's going on, brother? I'm um, uh, working hard, working hard. Pa- uh, one quick question, Pastor. After you preach the gospel each and every Sunday morning, and you ask people if they want to give their life to the Lord at the end of the service, and after folks come up and you talk to them, then you introduce them to the church and you ask everyone if you agree, you know, clap your hands or say amen. But does, now the Bible also says, um, I'm not exactly sure where, when someone comes to know the Lord, the angels of heaven rejoice. Correct? Yes, that's right. Luke chapter 15, oh, okay. there's more joy in heaven over one angel, over one sinner who repents than over 99, and, and Jesus speaks in that chapter about even the angels in heaven rejoice, yes. My question, and I'm just, it might be a crazy question, now, but when someone comes to know the Lord, especially if you see somebody you know that it is fantastic to give their life to the Lord, should we as a church be more excited during that time? I mean, should we, is there a display of emotions that should be seen when someone comes
come to know the Lord Sunday after Sunday. Well, you know, it's it's interesting you ask that because on occasion I will introduce someone uh, on a Sunday morning when God gives us, you know, people who come forward. And I'll say, you know, Joe came to meet the pastor last week, or Joe this morning, and in the pastoral prayer at the end of the sermon, you know, asked Christ to be his Savior, and he wants, you know, and sometimes people just break out in applause right then. Why do they do that? Because there is a joy. There is an excitement. Not to say that we're not excited when God brings a believer who's already been saved, um, but there is an excitement that we have. Uh, on Sunday morning. You could see that. I think you attend the second service, but like in the first service, we had a gentleman come down last Sunday. In fact, he was the only one in the first service who came down. We had a ton in the second service, but um, he basically said to me, Pastor Carl, I came here as a member saying I was a Christian, been baptized, but as I've been coming, I realized I, I, I wasn't a Christian at all. And I now want to be baptized uh, as a believer. And you could see the joy and the excitement on people's faces. You may not always see that uh, or see the same response if I'm introducing six, seven, eight, ten people. And and sometimes we're in a time crunch because one service has to get out and the next needs to get in. And um, But still, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, showing that emotion or that enthusiasm we certainly should, and I will say, too, that sometimes people come and they say there are Christians, and, of course, we just don't accept that at face value. They have to have a meeting to complete the membership process, either with a pastor in the office or they have to come to meet the pastor. So we had some people who came to meet the pastor last week, and, and one young man clearly was not a believer. He said he was 90% sure, and he gave a works righteousness, yet the church he came from, the pastor baptized him. And that was unfortunate because the pastor baptized an unbeliever. And so, um, and that makes it confusing sometimes. And this was just a young man, like 15 years old. Um, So um, we can't assume anything, but we do rejoice when God's working. And sometimes when people come down front, they're just taking a step forward. Sometimes they're under the conviction of God's spirit and and they need Christ. And sometimes they don't even respond later where they receive Christ. They let old pride dig in. And, um, but many times they do, most of the time they do. And it takes a lot of courage sometimes to walk down in front of hundreds of people. And in a day that we live in where the invitation is now virtually obsolete in evangelical churches, um, it takes even more courage. So anyway, I appreciate that, Anthony. Great question. Let's go to the next caller or question. We do have a question here from uh, somebody that just called in and dictated theirs. They'd like to know, how do we know when to fast? Well, it's a good question. God doesn't regulate it in Scripture, but he assumes, again, all things being equal. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, if you pray, if you fast, but when you fast. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, and I have a whole sermon on fasting, and maybe the most in-depth one actually was in my series on Daniel. And when we, if you go to uh, searchthescriptures.org, and you can certainly download the Search the Scriptures app at the App Store, um, and you could listen to it there if you're driving in the car or wherever, working outside. But listen to the first, I think I did four messages maybe on Daniel. And the first one, Daniel is fasting. So I really do kind of a biblical theology on fasting. And what does the Bible actually say about fasting? What is fasting? What is it not? And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of three things that when done in secret, not for the applause of men, 
but for God's sight and his praise, giving, praying, fasting. And by the way, there are public expressions of all three. Uh, there's public expressions of giving. There's public expressions of praying. There's public expression expressions of fasting. Just a few weeks ago, uh, at the end of a service, I asked the church, maybe the Lord would lead you to skip a meal this week and fast and pray for our Easter services. Uh, and that's an important thing to do. But Jesus said, whenever you fast, not if you fast, but whenever you fast. So he assumes his people will fast. Now, someone says, I can't fast. I've got you know, a problem with diabetes or physical issues. And, you know, again, um, God is not a legalist and your body's a temple, the Holy Spirit. And there are certain things that you need to do sometimes where there are some people who have such poor health, they can't fast. But assuming you have the health, um, he says, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so they'll be noticed by men. Oh, I'm fasting. Pray for me. <laughs> uh, they have their reward in full. Their reward is the praise of men. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, don't let people know. Don't, don't look gloomy. Uh, practice the proper expressions of grooming in your day so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret what is done will reward you. So God doesn't regulate it. He doesn't say do it once a week. The Pharisees, every Thursday, fasted all day. Um, he doesn't regulate it at all, but he does assume it. And there are times, you know, people come to me with problems and I say, well, you know, this is pretty major and this is a critical, maybe a life change decision you need to make. And you don't want to make the wrong mistake on this. I said, I would encourage you maybe to fast and pray, maybe skip lunch, you know, uh, one day this week. And instead of going off to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's, wherever you go or brown bagging it, uh, Go into your car, your prayer closet, if you have one in your office, and just spend that extra time in prayer. And two, what you discover is when you fast and your stomach is empty, uh, you'll have from time to time some hunger pains, and those hunger pains can be a reminder to intercede at God's throne of grace. So God doesn't regulate it. It's personal. And so I can't say, well, you're supposed to fast once a week or once a month or once a year. God gives you freedom as you are led by the Spirit of God. Uh, And sometimes God will just kind of burden your heart. This is like really important. And you need to fast for this wayward child. You need to fast for this major decision in life. You need to fast for this lost family member or friend. And God just kind of burdens you with that. And when he does, then you do what God shows you. And it might be a 24-hour fast. It might be a one-meal fast. You do what God shows you. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, very good. Suzanne from St. Helena Island would like to know what you can tell her about the new apostolic reformation organization. The youth pastor of the church her daughter attends was involved in it, and she finds a lot of their beliefs troubling and anti-biblical. For example, they believe that a new round of super prophets will be coming to earth. This is false teaching. Thank you for taking the time to read the question. It is false teaching. And it's not really new. They call themselves the New Apostolic Movement. It's just kind of a remakeover of uh, old Pentecostal truth. Uh, And again, I don't want to broad brush all Pentecostals in this category, but one of the uh, often characteristics of Pentecostal theology is there's new revelation that's being given. And that's not what God's Word teaches. We have a canon of Scripture that is closed. And so 
these guys who are in the New Apostolic Movement, probably the most famous uh, church in that whole realm is called Bethel Church. I'm sure there's a lot of Bethel churches in the country, but uh, they're pretty high visibility church, produced a lot of music even uh, for churches. But it, it puts a pastor or a leader in that movement in this like position of authority. He becomes a big shot. Why? Because God speaks to him, and God gives him new revelation because he's super spiritual. And because God is speaking to him, and you need to know what he says. It's very cultish, very, very cultish, and very, very dangerous. God has, the book of Jude says, delivered to us the faith. It's articular, not faith, but the faith, meaning the body of truth we call the Bible, once for all. So we have a completed canon of Scripture. It's called the 66 books of the Scripture, and God's not giving new revelation. So the whole apostolic reform movement, as they call themselves, or the new apostolic reform movement, there's about four or five different names they dress themselves in. Uh, it's, it's heretical, it's dangerous, it's evil. But there are Christians who are susceptible to this kind of thing for the simple reason that there's so much naivete in our day, people who don't know what God says. And so this new apostolic reformation which is typically, um, you know, non-denominational independent churches, and that's why non-denominational can meet just about any kind of parameters you want it to meet, um, though they do have some uh, leadership that's come out of some mainstream churches. But, you know, it's this power of these spiritual leaders. They're this elitist group, and they have uh, insight that nobody else has, and you need to know them, and and it, it just, it, it, again, it's just a remake of old Pentecostal theology, and it's very, 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 very dangerous. Anyway, good question. Well, we've got about a minute left, and you're still uh, talking about money on Wednesday nights, aren't you? I am. So we've just begun a new series, uh, Finances God's Way, and we'll be in this series for eight, nine, ten weeks. And our goal is really to give you a theology of money to walk through what God says about money. And I encourage even parents, you know, look, if you have a 13, 14-year-old young man or young woman, you should come and bring them. Where are they going to learn what the Bible says about giving, about tithing, about saving, about investing, about budgeting and planning? They need to learn from God's Word. And if you don't teach them in your home, then what are they going to do? Just magically, when they leave your home at 18, 19, 20 years of age, begin to practice these things? I think not. So we have a responsibility as family shepherds, whether you are a man or a single mom, to help your children through this whole process. So Wednesday night, uh, we have a time of worship. The teaching time usually starts at about 5 of 7. We have a ministry for children. And then we close with a time of uh, concerted corporate prayer. Hope you can join me. God bless you.